your kid comes home from high school with five B minuses and an F, you freak out about the F because you got to bring it up. What about that one A you ignored in the midst of all that noise? That one A in musical composition. That's Seth Godin, world-renowned marketing expert and the author of 20 international bestsellers that have been translated into over 38 languages and have changed the way people think about marketing. Oh, here's a glimmer of possibility. Go ahead, get as many Fs as you want, but you better have some A's because nobody needs well-rounded. We need exceptional. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with the one and only Seth Godin to discuss why scarcity subtracts but abundance multiplies, how repeated failure sets you up for success, and what it means to put your best work out into the world. Joy comes from doing something just a little bit harder than we expected, just a little bit scarier than we signed up for. And if you are lucky enough to be your own boss or in a situation like that, it's on you to create an environment where you are slowly turning that dial. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Seth Godin is one of the best-known marketing minds of our time, and he's published over a dozen best-selling books in his career. I wanted to begin our conversation by getting an understanding of what compelled him to write one of his more recent books, The Practice. You know, writing a book these days is different than writing a book when I was a book packager. That's what I did for a living. Now I write books when I have no choice because I can reach a lot of people with a blog post. What makes it worth making it into a book? And in this case, the idea of shipping creative work would not let go of me. That so often I run into people who are frustrated, who are underutilized, who are feeling disrespected simply because they are holding themselves back. They're not trusting themselves enough to find their true voice, to speak up, and to make a difference. And right now in particular, as the world is upside down, we need that more than ever. So the reason it's a book is because I was hoping that people will read it in a group. And that's why I devoted a year of my life to making this book. Now, I know you speak greatly about creative work. Who would you say is the audience for this book? It's not painters. It's not people who write symphonies. That has mistakenly been pigeonholed as creative work and everything else isn't. You know, so if I think about uh, lawyers, I used to live at the, in the law school dorm at NYU. I created several books working with hundreds of law firms around the country. Lawyers rarely define themselves as creative, but I got to tell you, with a CD-ROM filled with Word docs and GPT-3 and a few other tools, 
if all you know how to do is draft something that's been drafted before, we probably don't need to pay you. And when you think about the highlights of a career, whether you're a lawyer, an accountant, an executive, or somebody who's an elementary school teacher, they're always about solving interesting problems. That is where our highlights lie. What does it mean for a problem to be interesting? It means it's never been solved this way before. It means there's no guaranteed answer. It means that you can't look up the answer on Wikipedia. Because if you could, A, it's not interesting, and B, someone is going to do it cheaper than you. And I know you discussed throughout the book just the patterns of those who succeed versus those who don't. And it seems like even from the onset with the, with the first chapter, when you talk about trusting yourself, that you speak about having to do things to learn how to do them. If, if you could speak to that. Okay. So what's in between learning and education, right? Education is a scarcity-based model of coercion and compliance where you give up money and time and parts of your life in exchange for a piece of paper. And you know you're in an educational setting if you ask the following question. Will this be on the test? Because what you just asked is not, is this something I need to know, but how long do I need to know it for? Will this be on the test is not about learning. Everything that we really care about doing, riding a bike, walking, speaking intelligently, having relationships, there was no test for any of those things. We learned them. We did not get educated in them. And learning works because we fail before we get it right. That my godson failed at walking for, it felt like months, months. But Henry didn't sit down and then say, I give up. I'm never going to learn how to walk. He learned how to walk by walking poorly. And that's the way we learn how to do everything. And you also discuss and compare really decisions and outcomes. And, and in times you say that you can have a good decision, but a poor outcome. Yeah. So Annie Duke's not on the call, but if she was, uh, she would have a lot to say about this. Former world poker champion and my mentor on this topic. So full credit to Annie. This is super important. And any professional listening to this, if this is the only thing you take away, it will be worth it. Think really hard over the last six months about a good decision you made. Pick anything that was a good decision. You got it? So the question is, that good decision, did it lead to a good outcome? And the answer is always yes. People say yes. Well, then that's not really a good decision. That's just a good outcome. You got lucky. A good decision is a good decision even if it doesn't work out. Because what it means to make a decision is to look at the available data, the probabilistic curve, and say, based on who I am, what I know, and where I'm going, what is the best choice, regardless of how the dice, regardless of how the cards, regardless of how the world turns out, it's still a good decision. And the reason that this is so important is because if we become outcome-focused, we, A, develop bad habits by repeating bad decisions because in the past they worked out for us. And if, for example, you work with a bully at work, this is an example of that. The bully got away with something early in his career and he keeps doing it again and again, even though it wasn't a good choice. It just worked out early. And second, when the outcome doesn't work out, then we're going to give up. We're going to give up our practice. We're going to give up our craft because we got so hooked on it always working we don't know how to deal with the fact that the craft, the practice, the decisions aren't related to the outcome. They just lead to a better one most of the time. 
And I know you mentioned later on that, you know, if you need a guarantee that you're going to win before you even begin, you'll likely never start. Correct. So as, as we shift to, I mean, I know you mentioned nowadays, I mean, the world is long on noise and short on meaningful connections. So in terms of the differences between mindsets, just kind of the abundance versus scarcity, because uh, I know you speak at length of the fact that hoarding is, is really toxic and that's a product of a, of a scarcity mindset. Right. So let's think about where hoarding comes from. Hoarding certainly happens in North Korea where they don't have enough food. But what about places where there is plenty? Why is there hoarding? There's hoarding because capitalists need there to be scarcity because scarcity at some level creates value. That if red wine flowed like water, burgundy from a great vintage, you could buy a bottle of it for a nickel. You can't buy a bottle of it for a nickel because it's scarce. And so we started by creating stuff that people will buy because there isn't a lot of it. But then we added time to the equation. And so if you want to have a world-class lawyer look at your file, it's $900 an hour. Why? Because she can't look at two people's files at the same time. So if you want that hour, you got to pay for it. It's scarce. And so we get hooked on, well, I can't give it to you because then I won't have it anymore. We get hooked on this mindset of hoarding. And the problem with that is that most of the things we care about and our culture are not driven by scarcity. They're driven by abundance. So if I have a widget factory and everyone in town comes and takes a free sample, I'm going to go out of business. But if I have an idea and everyone comes and takes a free sample, I'm rich because I get to keep the idea and now the idea has gone up in value. And so we have to shift gears and think hard about how do I contribute to this culture? How do I earn trust as opposed to how do I approach a scarcity mindset and create distrust? So you mentioned that abundance multiplies while scarcity subtracts. What about on the notion of competition, right? Because one would argue that competition is, is also a scarcity mindset. Well, competition is definitely a scarcity mindset in the sense that only one person wins the Boston Marathon. However, 20,000 people race in it. So what are the rest of those people, fools? No, they know they're not going to win. They're not running because they want to come in first. They're running because they want to run. And so the opportunity is to weave together a fabric of culture. You know, the, the guy down the street who's my lawyer serves as the local town judge for like a nickel and is constantly organizing, showing up, contributing. And you can say, what a fool. He should just charge more billable hours. Well, no, because Joe is always as busy as he wants to be because he's trusted. And so he's not a good community member because it's going to help his business. But it's interesting to note that by not having a competition mindset, it actually helps his business. Absolutely. I mean, we see this all the time. I mean, many firms believe that one case for you know a competing firm could represent one less case for them. Whereas when we see collaborations between firms and collaborations even within their community, you actually see both, both firms thrive. Yeah. And part of the challenge that lawyers face is the billable hour, which is a fairly new invention. And the way that big firms used to do their billing is in November, the partners would sit down and they'd say, well, we have these 20 clients. How much should we charge each one? And that was it. And it was only when we tried to industrialize the law firm community that it turned into recording things to a sixth of an hour, 
right? And we all know the famous example of that lawyer who went to do a case in Tahiti and ended up billing 29 hours in one day because of the time zones. That's not a mindset that earns you the trust of the people you're seeking to serve. And on that note, actually, you know, I know you mentioned the fact of really niching down and that, you know, our desire to please the masses is actually what hinders a lot of innovation because you, you're basically vanilla. You're not for anybody in particular. Why do you think it is that people really avoid really niching down in many cases? Well, I think part of it is because we use phrases like niching down. If I had to use a phrase, because I've never used that, is I would say focusing up. Because the fact is, when we go to buy anything, we don't say, other than ketchup, we don't say, what's the average one? We say, who's the expert? So if you need knee surgery, you're not going to say to your friends, who's a surgeon in Atlanta that can do everything, including dentistry? You're going to say, who's the number one knee surgeon within 200 miles of here? And in fact, I have a left knee problem. I don't even want a right knee surgeon, just the left knee, please. Well, that's not niching down. That's becoming important. And we resist becoming important because the fact is, let's say you make the world's spiciest hot sauce, some ketchup consumers will not like it because it is not average, because it is not boring. And the vast majority of people, by definition, are average. So if you want to make average stuff for average people, go ahead. There are a lot of people in the legal industry who, if they were telling the truth, could put up a billboard that says, if you need a lawyer, we're a lawyer. And that's not a positioning statement. And you know, I know you speak about the why and asking why being brave and, and even doing an exercise in terms of clarifying one's purpose. So I was familiar with like the five whys method and kind of, you know, Toyota's manufacturing plant when they really use that. And I think it's even been used in Kaizen and Six Sigma and so on. But was that kind of the thought process behind that in terms of reaching that point of clarity? So it's interesting. I've studied Toyota quite a bit. And Toyota is doing two things at the same time. They are trying to say to every person in the factory, you can't leave your brain at home. They are saying to every person in the factory, you must take responsibility for everything you touch. Don't be a cog in a system that where you are instantly replaceable. We need you to take responsibility. But at the very same time, they are radically uh, limiting what you can take responsibility for. It is a religion. It is a way. It is a method. And that's why it can work at scale because most people have been indoctrinated to go to work to do a certain thing. And so Toyota put it in that sort of wrapper. I think that's really different from the flexibility that comes from being able to do all of your work with a keyboard and mostly being the chief bottle washer, head of strategy, and implementer all at the same time. You don't work in a factory. And if you treat your work like factory work, it's going to suffer. According to Seth, there's a pretty big difference between talent and skill. I asked him to elaborate on that. So I'm sort of obsessed with this. And I think that once people hear it, they might agree with me. Talent is something you are born with. And there are almost no talents that are important in the modern economy. So I would argue that I can't slam dunk a basketball on a regulation NBA hoop because I don't have the talent for it because I'm only five foot seven. But almost anything else is a skill. You did not come out of the womb or your DNA does not program you to be able to paint watercolors, to be able to 
engage with a coworker who's upset. None of those things are talents. Those are all skills. And that's really good news. It's good news because skills can be learned. And so we have to unindoctrinate ourselves. We have to unindoctrinate ourselves about caste and about industry and about waiting to be picked and about doing what we're told. That was all burned into us from a young age. Not necessary. Instead, we can say, skills are acquirable. What do I care about? I'll go do that. And then there's, a, there's an interesting quadrant where you talk about the difference between a hack, a failure, an amateur, and a professional, if you could speak to those. I don't have anything against hacks, but we need to call them what they are. In London, when it was smaller, the borough of Hackney was on the outskirts of town, and they raised horses there. They didn't raise great horses. They raised good enough horses, average horses for average people. And they tended to be purchased by cab drivers, which is why London cab drivers came to be known as hacks, because they just had average stuff. It is possible to be a hack lawyer. And basically what you say to your clients is, what do you want? And you give them that. And you don't have a lot of trouble making sales if you show up enough times. And there's nothing wrong with being a hack. But then don't also believe that you are an artist, a professional, someone leaning deep into what your craft could be. Because that's a different thing. So when Brian Stevenson builds a nonprofit that changes the justice system in parts of the United States. He's not being a hack. No one asked him to do that. He showed up to do it. And so if we're going to do this art, what it means is we don't get to just say to the customer, whatever the customer is, do you want fries with that? Right? McDonald's doesn't make art. McDonald's is a hack. But Ray Kroc, when he started McDonald's, that was art because maybe it wouldn't work. No one had ever done it before. What are the rules? How do I invent the next thing? So that's the fork in the road. And the trap is thinking you're doing one thing when you're actually doing the other one. And I would just put as an aside, having lived in the NYU law school dorm for a year, almost entirely law school teaches lawyers to be hacks. Now, I know that's the hack, but it seems like you could be one worse, right? The, the failure, because at least the hack is persistently serving his audience. That's correct. There are lots of ways to fail. One way to fail is to insist that everybody get your joke to insist that you are entitled to a commission for your symphony, that you are entitled to have a standing ovation for the work you just did, that you're entitled to win your case before the Supreme Court. You're not entitled. It doesn't come with any guarantee. And so part of what it is to be a professional to do this creative art is to have empathy for the audience, to say, they might not know what they want, but I have a hunch that this is going to resonate with them. And that distinction is super important because, you know, I would argue Steve Jobs led, whereas Tim Cook is a hack. Tim Cook hasn't had one innovation in the last eight years, not one product or insight that changed anybody's life. Whereas Jobs did it every year or two because he was willing to fail and he failed a lot. Whereas Apple just sort of mundles through now, it makes your stock price go up because the stock market really likes hacks, but it doesn't last. And what would you say is like the biggest mark of a professional in terms of differentiating that person from, from an amateur? Because it seems like both can have some you know, artistic vision or integrity, but there's a difference in the process at which they do things. Correct. I love amateurs. Hobbies are great. If you have a hobby, please keep doing your hobby. Just don't sell it for money. If you love playing blues guitar, 
Play blues guitar exactly the way you like to play blues guitar. But don't show up in a dive bar for 20 bucks. Because now you're not making the music for you. You're making it for the people in the room. And that turns you into a professional. You could be bad at it, but to be good at it has, means you have to have the empathy to say, I'm here for you. And this is a problem professionals have all the time, right? So the dentist who says, I wouldn't keep my teeth the way you're keeping your teeth, loses patience because the patient says, yeah, but I'm not a dentist and I'm not willing to pay the price you want me to pay. I'm just going to go somewhere else. And so what we have to do is balance the difficult act of leading people with, who trust us versus having empathy for what they believe and what they want. And let's speak to the topic of intent, because I know you mentioned earlier that you, you can't command people to laugh, right? And you really can't command anyone to feel a certain way, but you can, you can choose the right ones. And it seems like this is what holds back a lot of artists and creatives and so on in the sense that they worry that if they're very, very focused in the work that they're doing and they're very passionate about it, that might not resonate with everybody. It definitely will not resonate with everybody. And so we're back to catch up. The key is to pick the smallest viable audience. And- I wrote about this in This Is Marketing. The smallest viable audience is counter to everything we are taught in this country. Smallest viable audience says, I will be very clear who this is for and anybody else I will send to a competitor. And if you tell me that you believe this and I say, how many people have you sent to other firms in the last two weeks and you can't think of anybody, then you don't really believe it. And what it means is to say, for people who want blank, I have blank. Well, what is that? And how can you be clear about it? So Elvis Costello isn't for everybody. Spike Lee isn't for everybody. Cyrilla May isn't for everybody. Patricia Barber isn't for everybody. Okay. That's why they're for somebody. And so if you go to the Green Mill in Chicago when this pandemic is over on a Monday night at nine o'clock, you can sit and listen to Patricia Barber and her trio play jazz. There's only 125 people in the room because the room only fits 125 people. But in that five-hour jam session, her life will get better and your life will get better, or you won't get the joke and you will leave, one or the other. But Patricia doesn't have to chase anybody because the people who get it are waiting in line. And, and Seth, to your point, and I agree with you, and, and I actually argued this even, even in my book, which was a legal marketing book, but it seems that you know focusing or going after a smaller audience, many times, I think even listeners hearing this, they might feel that that is a privileged position to be in. And they say, well, Seth, that sounds great. But if I'm turning away all this business, how will I be able to really stay in business or grow my business? What, what are your thoughts on that? If you don't, how are you going to grow your business? If you don't do that, then you're making average law for average people. And average law for average people would be fine if you were the only average lawyer in town, because there are a lot of average people in town but you are not the only average lawyer in town. In fact, almost every lawyer is an average lawyer. So if I can't tell the difference between lawyer A and lawyer B, why will I pick you? And why wouldn't I want you to be cheaper? On the other hand, if I have an obscure copyright case about whether this is in the public domain or not, there's only five lawyers in America I would trust to take that case on. How do you become one of those five? Well, you start by turning away people who want you to do personal injury cases because you can't do both at the same time, right? So here's the deal. Law school is an industry and it has churned out more lawyers than we need. And if you want to persist and still be a lawyer, given the surplus of lawyers, you have to be 
a different kind of lawyer, a specific kind of lawyer, not a general kind of lawyer. Now, there's one exception, and the exception is sometimes people need general. They need one human who can do 40 different kinds of law. If you're going to be that kind of lawyer, you have to be the best at doing all of them, which is its own, its, its own form of Swiss army knife. But most of the struggling lawyers I know, most of the lawyers I know who are unhappy with their work, cannot tell you why they are the one and only choice for a specific issue. And if you're not the one and only, of course you're exhausted because you're lying all day long. And later you, you, you make the point that there's really no such thing as writer's block, which coming from you as someone who's written 19 books is, is actually probably a pretty good source on that. But you, know, you talk about that and then also in the sense of, I think you discuss credentialing as, as that being a form of signaling. So a lot of these practices seem to be stalling or, or even avoidance behavior. How do you approach you know, getting over these things? Okay. Well, writer's block is real, but there's no such thing. What people actually have is fear of bad writing. No one who ever told me they had writer's block was able to show me book after book after notebook of bad writing because they just have no writing. But everyone knows how to put three words together. You woke up this morning able to speak. If you just wrote down what you said, there's clearly no physical block there. And so what I'm arguing for, which I learned from Isaac Asimov, who I did a project with, he wrote and published 400 books in his lifetime. So I've got a long way to catch up. And Isaac sat for six hours every day and typed. And he wasn't allowed to stop typing. That was his job. He typed for six hours. And he said to, his subconscious said to itself, well, if I'm going to have to type anyway, I might as well type something good. And so, you know, when we think about credentialing, last time I checked, you don't have a podcaster's license. You're not certified by the Podcasters Association of America or the International Podcasting Association. And yet here you are with a podcast. How did that happen? And your first podcast, how many people listen to it exactly? 10, right? Everyone's first podcast only has 10 listeners. That's the law. And so we have this fascinating challenge. We've made up this spectacular mythology about being chosen, about being gifted, about being talented, about blockage. None of it's true. And so you got to decide if you care enough, because if you care enough, you can start right now. And on that note, I know you, you speak to imposter syndrome in, in the sense that this is actually a sign that you're a well-adjusted human because, I mean, I, I've started writing my second book and I'm feeling this you know, very much in, in the same way. But so imposter syndrome is not a bad thing. No, imposter syndrome means you're on the right path. Imposter syndrome is a compass. Imposter syndrome is what you feel when you're doing something that hasn't been done before, solving an interesting problem and are self-aware enough to know you're going to have to dig in and work even harder at it. And if you're not feeling imposter syndrome, one of two things is true. Either you're a sociopath or you're not trying hard enough. And if you try hard enough, if you lean out of the boat enough that you start feeling it, now you know you're onto something. And on the similar note, what, what would you say is the difference between reasons and excuses? Oh, that's an interesting question. Reasons and excuses. I think that you can't tell the difference between a reason and an excuse in writing. It's about the intent behind it. So the excuse is, this lets me off the hook. I don't have to take responsibility anymore. The reason is, this puts me on the hook, and I have to figure out how to make it so this reason never happens again. And the question is, how do we put ourselves on the hook? Because 
factory work trained workers to take themselves off the hook, that the goal of factory work is deniability. The reason there are so many meetings in our lives, leaving aside lawyers who bill by the hour, the reason there are so many meetings in our lives is so that everyone can sit around the table waiting for someone else to take responsibility. You know who never asks to get let off the hook? Pablo Picasso, you know Samuel Beckett, somebody who is creating art. They don't say, can I write a little less today? Can I create fewer plays? No, they don't say that. They say, how can I do this more? Because art is human. Art is why we're here. Work, by definition, we want to do less of. So I'm challenging people to realize what an opportunity they have, how much privilege anyone who's listening to this has, how much technology, how much benefit of the doubt, how much trust. So to just grind it out, I don't think that makes any sense at all. And you discussed with the things necessary for us to upskill or even level up. Um, you mentioned the concept of like desirable difficulty. Yeah. So what we know about flow and passion is we almost never feel them when we are doing something by rote. That if it's easy, much of our brain disappears. So the goal, but we also know if it's too hard, if it's too challenging, then we give up. We get frustrated. But right in between those two is a place for joy. And that joy comes from doing something just a little bit harder than we expected, just a little bit scarier than we signed up for. And if you are lucky enough to be your own boss or in a situation like that, it's on you to create an environment where you are slowly turning that dial. If you look at my blog, 7,500 posts later, my first 100 posts weren't as daring as the post I wrote today, but I have to keep turning the ratchet because I don't want to be somebody who's you know a ghostwriter for myself. I want to be present. And that means I have to do things that are scarier or new. The idea of an infinite game strikes a chord with those of us who aren't working towards an end destination, but rather do what we do because we enjoy the process. I wanted to know, how important is it to approach creative endeavors in this way? It's particularly poignant and relevant for the people who are listening to this. So let's understand what it is. We all know what a finite game is. It has innings, it has rules, it has winners and losers. There's usually a time clock associated with it. Soccer is a finite game. You know what else is a finite game? Litigation. Litigation is a finite game. There's the rules, there's the UCC, there's the, the this and the that, and at the end, there's a ruling. And if you're not a very good lawyer, then there's the appeal, but you get the idea. An infinite game, on the other hand, is a game we play to play. So if you want to play catch with your six-year-old son, I hope you are not trying to win catch. Throw the ball as hard as you can so they give up, because that would be winning catch. No. The goal of playing catch is to keep playing catch and to have so much fun playing catch that you look forward to playing catch again. That is the goal. That is an infinite game. Well, your career cannot possibly be a finite game because you can't win the law. You can't win. Yeah, you can make partner at a fancy firm, whatever, but then what happens? You die, right? What you're really hoping for is to play for playing's sake, to be able to enable the people around you to also play. And this is why civil litigation is so much better replaced by civil negotiation. Because civil negotiation becomes an infinite game. How do I write a contract that the other side says, wow, you took 
into account everything that we were looking for. Thank you, right? Because planting things into a contract using fancy words or subterfuge so that later you can go, ha, 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 I win. That's not good law. That is a, a scarcity mindset. We know that institutions that thrive don't do deals like that. And in my career, I've walked away from three or four companies, some of which are fairly famous, because they did do business that way. I'm like, not for me. And I've never worked with them again. So I love this aspect later in the book when you talk about earning your skills. And, and this is fascinating because you're, you're challenging the fact that of saying that there's really no quantitative difference in training and the people that are at higher levels of performance don't necessarily spend more hours in training, right? It's kind of the difference between quantity and, and quality of time. But, but what, are, what are some of the key differences between, let's say, great competitors and good ones? Okay. So um, this is based on a study of swimmers. And swimmers are a great group to study for a few reasons. First of all, we can uh, judge to a tenth of a second their performance. We don't have to worry about judges and things like that. Second, they all compete in the same way. So we have a huge base to choose from. And third, it turns out there's a really big striation between the performance of people at three different levels. Country club swimmers, these are people in a local league, college and similar swimmers, and Olympic swimmers. They are clearly grouped in their performance based on which one of those three they are in. Here's what the guy who wrote the paper did. And uh, I don't have his name handy. So if you want to add that to the show notes, that'd be great. He compared diet. He compared the hours they spent in training. He compared the background of their coaches. He compared uh, whether they were good at life. No difference whatsoever. The people in the country club league didn't have a happier life, didn't eat more fatty foods, didn't train fewer hours. Nope, no difference. The difference was people in each group chose to be in the group. That once you decided to compete at the Olympic level, you were surrounded by people who were competing at the Olympic level and you learned from each other. Your technique was different because you committed to being people like us and people like us do things like this. And what's fascinating to me about this is it applies in so many other areas of our life. So my wife was a lawyer for a really long time. And 20 years after graduating law school, people would still ask, where'd you go to law school? This is, this is absurd because you did well on the LSATs when you were 21 years old. We're going to pigeonhole you for life. Well, at some level we do. And the reason we do is not because Harvard was good at picking who should get in and who shouldn't. We have plenty of data that show that people who get into Harvard and don't go, actually perform just as well as people who get into Harvard and do go. Because it's not what anything that Harvard is doing that determines whether or not you're going to perform. It's what you decided about who you are and where you are going. And that decision is reflected in which firm do you join? Which people at the firm do you hang out with? Who are you seeking to impress? Who are you walking away from? Which clients do you pick? So when you're struggling at 25 and you take a shyster client, well, that's the kind of lawyer you're going to become. And you might never recover from that. And so I think we have to make a real commitment early and often about what do we know, how do we know it, and how are we measuring ourselves? 
And it seems like there's a lot of things at play here. I mean, I know you mentioned like kind of the, the cultural standards and so on, and even those that we surround ourselves with, they, they have, you know, an enormous influencing factor of, of the type of work that we do and, and even how committed we'll be to it, but also in, in the interplay between the things that you're really good at and then spending your life dedicating yourself to those things, you know, and emphasizing strengths rather than improving weaknesses. Right. So if your kid comes home from high school with five B minuses and an F, you freak out about the F, right? Because you got to bring it up, right? Well, what about that one A you ignored in the midst of all that noise? That one A in musical composition. Oh, here's a glimmer of possibility. Go ahead, get as many Fs as you want, but you better have some A's because nobody needs well-rounded. We need exceptional. I think people need to hear that again. I mean, I, I know and I say it because it's like it could be the difference between a, a life of joy where you're thriving and you're aligned with your strengths versus a life of misery trying to, you know, focus on, you know, just improving weaknesses. Yeah. But I also need to say, if someone says to you when they are 10 years old, I am bad at math, what they've actually said is I've had bad math teachers. Nobody is bad at math. Nobody. And we often give up on things for the wrong reason, because they've been misclassified. And figuring out what we are great at is much more about an emotional spectrum than it is about the actual content of the thing involved. So if someone says, I am great at oil painting, but I can't possibly do a good job as a teacher, I'm not buying that. And there's this fascinating concept you mentioned towards the end of the book, the notion of seeking out constraints in the sense that, you know, oftentimes an abundance of resources is what kind of breaks down resourcefulness and creativity and innovation. And, and this is interesting because I know many entrepreneurs when they're starting their business and they don't have many resources, but they have many constraints, they're forced to be innovative. They're forced to think creatively. I think the example you gave was even the band REM. What are your thoughts in terms of why one should seek out constraints? Well, so if you... Do some uh, Googling or look in YouTube, you will see that there's uh, this group of magicians that have created uh, videos that will blow your mind. Every ma magician uses exactly the same deck of cards. That's a constraint. When REM was midway through their career, they were starting to burn out. So they invented constraints. They switched instruments. They made an entire album in which, I don't remember which member, Peter or whatever, played the mandolin. Like he'd never played the mandolin before. Constraints. And it turns out constraints are something to lean against. They're the edge of the box. You can't think outside the box. It's too dark. But on the edge of the box, you have something to lean against. So these constraints, I only practice this kind of law. I only have that kind of client. I only do interactions that last this long. I only hire people. Whatever you want to say, these constraints force you to go to the edges. And the internet makes it look like everything is possible, but everything is only possible if you're willing to be completely mediocre at it. It takes focus and bravery to be great at something. I've been saying for the last several months that I feel like the legal industry in particular has, has made six years progress in the last six months. Would you argue that a lot of the constraints that we face as a result of the pandemic have been the reason why we've seen so much innovation? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there are plenty of industries and plenty of people who have pointed out that as horrible as the pandemic has been, it has accelerated certain elements of the future arriving. A Zoom call is a simple example of that. The ability to transfer through time and space asynchronously and synchronously is another example of that. 
And so law gets into trouble as soon as it calls itself an industry, because industry means scarcity and hourly and all the other stuff. But if law is about how do I change the lives of my clients for the better? Well, the fact that we were able to scramble time and space means that into that transition mode, we are looking for innovators. And if you want to be an innovative chemist, I think that's great. But most of the people listening to this are not chemists. So how about being an innovative arbiter of disputes? How about being an innovative counselor to help people get to where they're going? Because if the legal industry persists in being what it was, it will be obsolete sooner than most people know. The internet hates the kind of thing that lawyers do. If you don't believe me, ask a travel agent. Well, you can't because there are no travel agents. And the same thing is going to happen to most lawyers. And much of what's discussed throughout this book really comes down to, to trusting yourself. But at the same time, you know, I would argue as a catch-22, if someone's approaching something that they've never done before and may not have confidence in it, it's difficult for them to trust themselves. How, how do you get over that barrier? Well, what does the phrase trust yourself even mean? Who's doing the trusting and who is the self? How can there, when you talk to yourself, who's talking and who's listening? So I'm arguing that we do have two selves. We have the self that's verbal and negative and afraid. And we have the self that doesn't do well with words, but believes in possibility and has a spark. If we can learn to trust that voice and then add the other stuff to it, we can make great stuff happen. And I guess my argument is you don't get confidence because it worked. You get confidence because you commit to a practice. And I've taught thousands and thousands of people how to juggle and nobody who learns how to juggle knew how to juggle before I taught them how to juggle. And now they know. So where did the confidence come from? It did not come from, oh, now I know how to juggle. It came from, oh, I can throw one ball. Throwing one ball gives you the confidence to throw two balls. And once we learn to throw balls, then the catching will take care of itself. And the same thing's true with how we learn to talk. And the same thing's true with how you learned to argue before an appellate judge. It's simply a matter of committing to a practice and whatever happens in the outcome, learn from it and then do it again. And Seth, on this podcast, you know, much of what we discussed, a lot of it has been around decision-making frameworks. We've, we've talked about this on a number of different episodes with a number of different guests. I'm curious, as, as someone who undoubtedly receives numerous opportunities, what is your decision-making process for determining whether you'll pursue an opportunity or not? It's complicated. There are parts of it that are simple. Uh, the biggest simple part is, would I be proud to put this in the world even if I didn't get paid to do it? And if the answer is no, then my answer is no. The second thing is, is the person I'm talking to hustling me? Because no one wakes up in the morning hoping to get hustled. So then the answer is no. My default answer tends to be no, because I realize everything I do means less time on the thing I've already committed to doing. But then I say, well, does this scare me a little bit? Is it generous? Is it a chance to turn on lights for people? Will it help leave a path behind that makes things better by making something better? Then I'm more inclined to do it. But it's complicated because sometimes you do something thinking it's going to be 10 minutes and it leaves a ring on your coffee table that takes years to get rid of. And other times you commit a lot of energy to something. You know, the specific example 
when I was running one of the first internet companies, AOL was our biggest client. And we signed a deal with them to build a chat game platform that was a true breakthrough. We spent nine months building it. And it was going to ensure the next five years of our company's future. And two days before it was going to launch, AOL changed its business model. So our royalty would have gone from 15% of $3 an hour to 15% of zero. And it disappeared. And you just can't count on the outcome. You can count on the process. So I'm glad we went through the process. But in that moment, the outcome really hurt. And nowadays, and probably even, I don't know if it's even nowadays, it seems like always people have been giving advice, right? There's no shortage of, of advice. But I'm curious from your perspective, what's been the worst piece of advice that you've ever received? I think that the idea that you should take advice might be some really bad advice. I think that you should uh, understand the principles. And if someone can outline principles for you and they become your principles, it's not advice. Before GPS, I wasn't great at following directions from someone on the side of the road because six turns later, I forgot what the seventh turn was supposed to be. That's advice. On the other hand, if someone had given me a compass and explained that Cleveland was due west, I could have figured out my way there. And Seth, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? It's not called the game playing attorney, right? What it means to be a game player is that you accept the rules as written and you do your best to win. To be a game changer is you say, I'm going to take one step up to a new dimension and figure out how to play a different game. And so, you know, if you founded a book group inside your law firm and dealt with everybody rolling their eyes and dealt with everyone showing up late and dealt with all of the status games, but still got eight people on your firm to read the practice and discuss it, you would be changing the game because the law of being in a law firm is you don't have a book group. Well, you could change the game. I hope you enjoyed revisiting this episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with our guest, Seth Godin, and have gained some new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Seth Godin, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.